Hello, thank you for joining us for this discussion with Stephen Gethins on his book, Nation to Nation, Scotland's Place in the World. I am Jordan Buchanan and I'll conduct this interview with Rory Bannerman. We're going to discuss Stephen's experience of writing this book and why he did it, as well as open up the conversation about Scotland's global connection. So thank you, Stephen, for agreeing to participate in this podcast. Could you briefly introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, of course. Um, thanks for having me along. Real pleasure to be with, with, with you both today. My name is Stephen Gethins. I'm a professor of practice at the School of International Relations at the University of St Andrews. And before that, I was Member of Parliament for North East Fife and the SNP's Foreign Affairs and Europe spokesperson. And I also served two terms on the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Brilliant. Then um, would you like to just start by giving us a, a summary of this, of this new book uh, that, you, that you've brought out this year and kind of what, what motivated you to, to write it um, uh, and kind of how the process went? Yeah, so I was, um, before I went into politics and subsequently here in, in, in academia, I worked for international NGOs, um, I worked in the European institutions, but I've always been really interested in foreign policy. And one thing that struck me over the years is that regardless of whether or not you believe Scotland should be independent or not, um, Scotland's got a significant foreign policy footprint. And it's one that has a profound impact on our domestic politics. You know, this is something that's gone on through history, that Scotland's place in the world has been um, as heavily influenced um, our development as a nation, but also in more recent years, our place in the world is at the very heart of our debate with Brexit driving um, the debate and discussion around Scotland's future. So I wanted to explore Scotland's foreign policy footprint. I was really fortunate to gain the insights and expertise of friends and colleagues from across the political spectrum in the United Kingdom, Conservatives, Labour, SNP. But also what was really interesting for me was to get people from throughout the world. So people in Washington, D.C., people in other European capitals to give me their thoughts. And what I really wanted to do with the book was I thought, well, if our foreign policy is important and it's very much hidden in plain sight with people even saying that Scotland doesn't have a foreign policy, what I want to see is an opening up of a discussion about Scotland's place in the world, because how people see Scotland's place in the world is going to be incredibly important for the kind of future that people choose for themselves um, in the coming months and years. Right. Um, so you begin the book by outlining the, the many ways that Scotland has engaged with the rest of the world throughout its history, um, going all the way back to the, to the ancient past in some cases. Um, yes. Do you think that this history has given Scotland a, and Scots a substantially different outlook towards foreign countries and, and, and the kind of the outside world in comparison with other nations? Um, and kind of what the what the role of Scotland's history kind of plays on, uh, yeah, it's, it's 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 kind of national outlook today. So first of all, I should say as a, as a health warning, I'm not a historian, but what I wanted right. to do, given that given that some people that this this issue about whether or not Scotland has a foreign policy footprint at all is can be contentious, I wanted to say, well, look, history teaches us about where we are just now. We need to learn from history. Every country in the world, every area of the world has its own unique outlook, which is based on its history, based on culture, based on a range of factors. And although I'm not a historian, I wanted to say, look, Scotland's engagement with its international partners is not something that's new. So I went right the way back and um, and 
and and and so I, I was able to reference, and it's more for, for for people as a reference point that you know the only letter that we have in the name of of that was written by William Wallace was written a few weeks after he became Guardian of Scotland, and it was a letter of Lubeck. It was a letter to the Hanseatic League, the EU of its day, saying Scotland's once again open for business. Robert the Bruce um, wrote the Declaration of Our Growth, Scotland's Declaration of Independence, but that was described as a letter to the UN of its day to the Pope, saying as as a plea for Scotland's independence to be recognised. And interestingly, our independence came to an end um, in 1707 with the Treaty of Union, which was driven in part by the Darien scheme, which was a failed foreign policy venture. So what I'm saying is, regardless of whether or not you believe Scotland should remain part of the Union, it should be independent, this has been a really important factor. And we've seen that in recent years when you saw successive Conservative administrations developing Scotland's brand in the opening of Scotland House in Brussels and trying to influence the EU policy agenda. You saw Labour and the Liberal Democrats pursue this by opening offices in Washington, D.C., Beijing. Jack McConnell is the Labour First Minister developing Scotland's International Development Fund. That was um, driven onwards under the SNP, um, which followed a distinctive foreign policy in Edinburgh, even with limited powers from that that was being pursued in Westminster. And it's kind of crystallised now where you see political consensus across the chamber, one of that is pro-European, that is multilateralist, that gets the idea of the pooling and sharing of sovereignty, compared to the one at Westminster, which is increasingly unilateralist, that's pursuing a global Britain agenda, has turned its back on greater European integration, is trying to define a role for itself as well. So I'm not a historian, but I just wanted to paint a picture of where we are at the moment trying colour the debate for people that's that's fair i just just to plug my own uh sort of path bit of research Please. just just for just for a second because I, I did I just just finished looking at the darian scheme and a lot of the rhetoric and mm. the kind of the ideology that's kind of underpinning that 17th century uh project um is is is, is colored a lot by at least an aspiration to be uh an in more internationalist cooperative empire uh, <laughs> um, with with the other European empires um, and at, le- at, le- at least one of the, the backers talks about a concern with um, not just the national interest but a kind of international interest and so there's a an underlying cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism to at least the kind of the ideology of that project and it was, it was just interesting to look, there might be a, a few parallels between that uh, that sort of rhetoric and kind of the modern rhetoric used by the SNP surrounding, um, uh, yeah, an, 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 outward, an outward looking Scotland. Um, so I, I, was just, I was wondering how many, uh, you said you're not a historian, so might not be looking for a, a, c- a complete set of, of long historical parallels um but because that's how you set out the start of the book it was just interesting um to to see kind of how how you join the dots and and how you look at commonalities throughout scotland's history so what 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 i want to ask you is first of all i'm not a historian i was joining the dots quickly the book was 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 (laughs) written because i wanted it to be out there so here's my question for you the first one's an easy one which is i'm currently doing a second edition and i'd love to interview you for that to get your thoughts (laughs) Because so, I think I, I think I think you're right. Yeah. So I want to interview you for that. My second question is, did I get it right in the book? Because I think that's important. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And the final one is a reflection. You talk about the influence on SNP rhetoric. Well, 
rhetoric by successful political parties, and the SNP right now is a successful political party, is only successful if it reflects national conscience, if it reflects what people think. You know, political parties don't dictate um, what what people think, they reflect it. So I think that that idea of internationalism is something that exists in Scotland, but maybe that's in part to being, you're not a big power. You have been engaged, you've got a bigger power as as a neighbour. And so the pooling and sharing of sovereignty and your place in the international community has quite a heavy bearing on you because you're not a world power. You can kind of set the weather. And I think that's something that we in Scotland have become quite comfortable with. But Rory, tell me, did I get it wrong? No, I, I, I thought you had a, you, you treated it all very well. Um, and I, I certainly didn't have any uh, disagreements uh, that were major enough to cause a <laughs> significant comment. So, no. Oh, well, that's, that's reassuring. <laughs> and I'm going to follow up with you for that for my second edition that I'm right, that I've been asked to write just now. Brilliant. Um, so, I think the last sort of historically based uh, question. Yeah. Um, so, for, yeah. So, following on from this, are these historical connections, which um, you kind of outline, the solid ground from which we should be building modern diplomatic links, um, or or do they distract more from forming worthwhile partnerships with nations that have historically not had the same connection with Scotland? I mean, should we be putting all our energy into outreach in, in Paris because of the old alliance when actually we'd benefit much more from uh, partnerships with, with Egypt or countries in South America or Asia that haven't so, had that same uh, history and shared story. Yeah, so I think that your shared story forms part of your diplomatic outreach, that soft regard is, is a resource. If you look at any country around the world, you know, if you're the um, Irish ambassador in um, in Buenos Aires, you will be looking for links between Ireland and Argentina because it it builds common ground. It's helpful for you as an ambassador, be it for cultural, economic, political, or other links to draw from history and and find common ground. So history provides a resource, um, and I think Scotland. And one thing I wanted to look into, Scotland's probably got one of the best recognised international brands, certainly of any sub-state actor. And actually one of the best recognised international brands of any, you know, that is even better than a large number of independent states with full foreign ministries. So you should use it as a resource and other countries use it. Um, It shouldn't define, your history should not define who your relationships, where your focus is in the future. You know, I mean, you shouldn't just... um, we shouldn't just be developing links with France because it was important to Scotland 700 years ago. We should be developing links with France because it's important to Scotland in the 21st century, not 700 years ago, but 700 years of history or, or beyond and, and um, beyond that, even towards the 9th century, gives you a strong foundation to build on, especially because you didn't have that full, you've not been a full member of the international community of nations. So you start you start from, not quite from scratch, but 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 but, but you don't have the legacy that others do. So it's a resource and should be treated as a resource, but our history should not dictate our future. We should learn from it. But for me, our closest partnerships are and will continue to be our European friends and and neighbours. But that's not to say that other relationships are not important and shouldn't be cultivated as well. Right. 
And and you you touched on it in your answer there again, um, as as you did in the book, is this discussion of of Scotland's brand and how that's a powerful uh, resource um, in Scotland exercising itself in international affairs. Um, Do you think that this um, concern with Scotland's image um, has a has a disproportionate influence on its its foreign policy and and even its domestic policy in some cases because my mind immediately went to um, the debate around GM crops in Scotland and how I, the, the, the were, there were voices that wanting to overturn this ban um, yeah. and the the defence that whoever the SNP spokesperson was um, the the first thing that came to their mind was uh, that it would it would affect the image of Scottish food exports. And we've got quite a, I, I, think a, I don't know, a sort of an, an idyllic or, or, or um, image of uh, organic foodstuffs and high quality produce. And, and that, that image would be tarnished if we implemented uh, or we, we allowed without GM crops. So it, so it was kind of the, the image was the most important part of that rather than domestic pros and cons of the specific issue. I might, uh, not be entirely accurate with that, but that was the so, general. I, I disagree with your take slightly on this. Okay. I think the, the the debate around it, and it was driven by Richard Lockhead, certainly in GM Foods, and we're going back a few years now, was driven by what was economically best. So some people in the Scottish food and drink... Now, remember that even in the years after the financial crash in 2008, the Scottish food and drink industry, in terms of its exports and people employed, was growing at a rate of knots. I remember the Scottish government kept setting targets and the food and drink industry kept smashing them. And as a country like Scotland, you cannot be a world leader in everything. So you've got to focus. You know, what are you a world leader on? Probably renewables, higher education, food and drink would be in there. Your brand's really important. So if you're selling Scotch beef or Scottish fisheries products overseas, why should people buy the Scottish product and not an Irish product or a French product or an Australian product in that kind of global. So that's where brand and image is economically really important. So the arguments around GM crops, for instance, and this goes for a range of things, were driven by good economics rather than some kind of international political statement. I don't think that was the case. might be the case with other things, but I think they are. So that's why industry will drive it because they, I think at the time with Scott, with organic being important, with some discussion and debate around GM, because the moment you have GM, you can't really go back from it. I think that that was driving the debate. Now, there were different voices within the sector, as, as there are for a range of, on, on a range of issues. But this was to do with hard-headed economics and making sure that you were able to export and sell a high-quality product in a range of markets throughout the world. Right. Um, do you think there are any other examples then of where Scottish policy would would be affected by this desire, I think you put it in the book, that Scotland is very well-liked and that has this kind of soft power resource? Um, so soft, soft power should not be underestimated. And I remember sitting on the Foreign Affairs Committee and there was, and that, that, that brings in people from across political spectrum as a team, that there was some criticism that it's something that the UK had let slip in recent years, that the Brexit impact of Brexit, whereby there was only one government around the world who really thought Brexit was a good idea. And that was Donald Trump's administration, who, of course, have lost office. So, the, so there was a hit on UK soft power. Um, Jonathan Cohen, who runs Conciliation Resources and looks at foreign policy, said, give me a cracking quote for the book when I interviewed him. And he said, 
what is foreign policy if not to make people who don't think of you very often like you? You know, because we have to remember if you're if you're in 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 politics in I don't know China. You think about Chinese domestic politics. I mean, domestic politics drives foreign policy. So your your brand and how people think about you is important. So. Scotland, and I argue we need to do more of this, had to step up in the aftermath of Brexit. We had to show we want to maintain our links with our European partners. These are our most important um, markets. These are our most important relationships, as notwithstanding our most important bilateral relationship, which, of course, is with London and will continue to be with London. There's a job of work to do in that. So areas where Scotland's done it, areas like climate change, and I used the example of um, I think it was COP15, the one in Copenhagen, where Scotland went out and said, we want to be world leading leaders on climate change. Then you had climate justice and the outreach in places like Beijing and Alex Salmon's important speech at the Communist School of China in Beijing as well. Um, and that's got good economics in it as well, because if you go down the route of pursuing renewables, you want to sell that technology. So in a range of areas, you want to tell a good story. And if you look at other countries around the world, you will find that they will invest in telling a good story about their country because that's something that sells. And what's really striking is that other sub-state actors, so Quebec, um, Bavaria, Flanders, Faroe Islands, put a lot more resources into that international footprint than we do in Scotland. And my argument is, is there something to be learned from this? And is this something that unionists need to think about? And I was really pleased, actually, there was an article about my book in the House magazine where Lord Howell, a Conservative former Foreign Office minister, said, actually, we as unionists need to think about this question about Scotland's foreign policy footprint and are we investing in it enough? Okay, so I've got just got one more question before I pass on to Jordan. Yeah. Um, and yes, one of the things that you focus on is, is the, the international community of Scots around the world. Um, and how this could be viewed as a potential resource um, for, for foreign policy and otherwise. I remember actually this being mentioned by Alex Salmon during the independence referendum campaign. Yeah. I, don't, I hadn't actually heard um, it kind of brought up since, but then it was described almost as, as sort of Scotland, an independent Scotland's secret weapon is that there are millions of people around the world who either have Scottish ancestry, um, have moved... Uh, recently from Scotland or just identify with, with the interests of Scotland. Um, so could you just elaborate a little bit on how this, this kind of global network could be used to advance the interest, the national interest of Scotland? Yeah, so first of all, your diaspora is important. And some people estimate Scotland's got a diaspora of about 70 million of Scots and, and, and affinity Scots, which means for every Scot living in Scotland, you've got another, what, 13 or 14 living elsewhere. What a huge resource. And you see the way the Irish use it, and they use it for economic development, but they also use it for political clout. And you saw that during the Brexit process when Ireland's, one of Ireland's biggest crisis, foreign policy crisis since the Second World War, of course, was Brexit, and the way that they used their leverage in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. So there's that political leverage. There's the economic leverage. And I spoke to the Brexiteer, David Campbell Bannerman, who sat on the Trade Committee, a big Brexiteer, Conservative, unionist sat in the trade committee in the European Parliament and he said to me why on earth are the UK not using the leverage of the Scottish diaspora as we seek trade deals and reaching out beyond Washington to the, the, the states um, as others do 
you know, and, and, and you look at the links between the Basques and people in Idaho with strong links. You look at the, the links that the Irish have, the German links, all over. You've got these strong diaspora links. The Ethiopians have used it. The Italians have used it. The Israelis have used it. The Indians use it. So that's a resource for, for both sides. Um, and as, as one person in Washington, D.C. said to me, didn't understand a, a, sort of a government official saying, why don't the U.K. play the whole team? As in, you've got these fantastic brands within the UK. If you believe in the UK, why don't you play the whole team? Now, the politics of this are quite different. And I included a great quote from Neil Asherson, who's a fantastic author and, and, and journalist. And I encourage anybody to read his fantastic books. And he said, well, the Scottish diaspora is politically quite useless. And I'm pretty comfortable with that. And I'll tell you why. Um, it's good to have these links and that influence. But the people who should decide on Scotland's future are those who live in Scotland, regardless of where they come from. So I think it's okay for the diaspora to be politically quite use useless because those links are useful in so many other ways, regardless of the future that we choose for ourselves. That's what you're doing, for the next set of questions. Thanks, Rory. Okay, so I'm going to push back a little bit on some of the, the responses here, uh, but I'd like to follow what you highlight in your book, which is to disagree agreeably. So I'll try to try to employ that as best as I can. Good. Uh, so I'm going to focus on, 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 put my glass on. Yeah. Uh, start off on a bit more of an agreeable question, which is uh, so you refer to a lot of global concepts in your book in relation to nationalism and like the international state system. Yeah. Yeah. How did, how did you approach that? What methods did you use to, to think about that? Uh, what sources did you use and how did you approach that personally? To look at, so what I did was, so you have to realise with this book, and this is why it wasn't an academic book and I was purposefully didn't make it an academic book. Um, so my approach was to draw my own personal experiences. My approach was to speak to as many people as I possibly could. And my approach was to try and, obviously it had my slant, it had my bias, we've all got bias in there but my approach was to try and reflect the debate as it is and as it can be. But fundamentally, I wanted to put the ideas about Scotland's foreign policy footprint out there for the very reason that you're about to go into, Jordan, which is I didn't mind if people disagreed with everything I said, but what I minded was they were talking about it and they were thinking about this subject, because how do you make policy better? How do you make, you know, if you live in a democracy, the hope is that when you start off a debate, and I hope that this will start a debate, that what you end up with is better than what you started with. But for me, this is very much at the start. So I need to um, toughen my skin, stiffen my resolve, and hopefully people will engage with it and see fit to criticise it. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. I think it's a great idea. Um, and, you know, thanks for beginning this conversation by talking about Scotland's role in the world. Um, so the first major issue that I thought when I picked this book up, when I went into a bookstore, I looked at the index and I could not find anything relating to Argentina, Brazil, Mexico. Um, and then I was looking at, well, maybe other parts of the world. So I had a look at some African nations. Yeah. No mention. Yeah. Um, and I found, so Scotland's role in the world really means Scotland's role with Europe. And although you talk about the USA in this book, I'm also considering that as part of the Eurosphere. It's a European settled colony. Yeah. Um, so why? Like, so why did you omit non-European assessment in your work? It was basically my own, bluntly, it was my own limitations. Um, 
very bluntly, and that's why it opens up a conversation in the work that you're doing. Um, and I shall have to interview you for my second edition as well. But I wanted to make it a short book. I didn't want it to be too long, so I've kept it to, and I've got a copy here. About It's just over 200 pages. I didn't want it to be any more. Also, if this is feeding into the debate, um, the debate about Scotland's future is very much focused on Europe at the moment because of Brexit, what's our relationship like with Europe. That will be the determining factor in how we see ourselves and the determining factor and our future as it evolves. Um, so I got in touch with what I knew, the sources I knew. I did touch upon Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay briefly, but it was very brief because my own experiences in Latin America are limited. I don't have your knowledge. But what I did, I was able to reflect a wee bit on, for example, Scotland's influence on football in Argentina. And um, Scots have been much more successful in influencing um, a successful footballing nation in Argentina than they have been back home. Um, if only we had that kind of pedigree, if they'd been able to develop that kind of pedigree. So I think it, it, it reflects my own limitations and I had to draw a line somewhere. So I think there's a lot more work to be done. And the fact it was Eurocentric just reflects my own expertise and my own experiences more than anything else. Okay. I think that's a good, good explanation as to why. Um, obviously in the book it doesn't come out so much as to why that is, but I wanted to try and tease that out a little bit. Do you know, it's, it's a good point and it's probably something that I should have picked up in, in the in the introduction. I should also do as part of an explainer, I bashed out the book in about four or five months, which is another reason why I'm doing another another one. But I wanted it out ahead of the Scottish parliamentary elections in 2021. And I used the opportunity of lockdown, giving away all my secrets, but I used the opportunity of lockdown to be able to speak to people anywhere in the world like this on Zoom and Teams. And also the fact that I wasn't travelling, so I had a wee bit more time to sit and just write something. So it is a product of limited time, limited research, and I'd love to expand it out a wee bit more as well. And you're quite right to pick up on that. That's great. I mean, I'll, I'll look forward to reading the second edition if it includes more uh, Global South studies. Maybe you can help me out with it. <laughs> so looking at the, the kind of like future idea of Scotland's international relations, the major concern here when you're talking about uh, connecting it to Europe and connecting it to the United States. These are countries that have a history of exploitation, not just 100 years ago. Today, they still do it. It still carries on. Countries yeah. still hold a power dynamic that exploits the resources in Latin America, Africa and Asia. So the concern yeah. here is how is Scotland actually going to be a break from this, especially as a lot of Scottish national identity distinguishes itself as more egalitarian. But if all you end up achieving in a post-independent Scotland is replicating the international system that was there before it. All we're doing is adding another country to the list of exploiters. So how do, how do you engage with this idea? How does how can Scotland potentially not follow that same path and offer a breakaway from exploitation? So first of all, I think you always need to recognise your restrictions. So when I talk about divergence between the UK, it's up Holyrood and Westminster in terms of unilateralism versus multilateralism. If in Scotland you have to embrace multilateralism, you know, so... Finland, Denmark, Ireland. So these are countries that I'd see as being similar um, in their outlook. Focus on a small number of areas. Recognise they cannot act without working with like-minded countries. And you do that through the European institutions. You do it through NATO. You do it through the United Nations. So you have to recognise that you are not going to change the world 
overnight and you need to work with others in order to make that change a reality, which incidentally I think is something that is, we're losing out of, of in the United Kingdom, whereas the idea of global Britain is being out there, acting alone, acting in an almost unilateral way. Um, I think you can show leadership in some areas. So climate justice is an area that Scott, the Scottish government has shown leadership on in recent years. Um, so you pick and choose your areas. I think climate justice is one, given our work on renewables, our work on energy. Um, that, that leadership and climate change, we've not done enough. We've got to do more, but we're slightly ahead of others on it. The issue of governance and providing a safe space um, for those affected by conflict is an area that people involved in international NGOs have identified as Scotland having um, the opportunity. You know, there aren't many countries that have that opportunity. Scotland is one. But it also means you have to recognise what you can't do. So that means that you are never going to have, you know, if you're defining Scotland's place in the world, you're not a mini UK. You shouldn't try and be a mini UK. You're not Denmark, you're not Ireland, you're Scotland. And that's why we need to have this discussion and debate about what you are. But you also need to recognise the darkness of your past as well and be honest. How can you be honest? How can you tell the world a story about yourself if you don't know who you are? So one of the reasons why I highlighted Darien and I highlighted the, um, the colonisation in Nova Scotia was because this was colonisation that took place in Scotland before the Treaty of Union, that Scotland wasn't, you know, it wasn't as if we're out forming colonies and, and exploiting um, local people in these, in, 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 in these parts of the world as part of a union, which we played an active role in, incidentally, a very active role in, but Scotland was already proactively seeking colonisation as an independent country, and that is important. And that's also why when you talk about... Um, the British Empire, you have to concede that Scots played a proactive role. And what I'd like to see is something that Irish President Michael Higgins opened up a conversation, a national conversation in Ireland recently, to talk about Ireland's role in empire. Now, given Ireland's history, what happened, that's not an easy conversation to have because Ireland did suffer in its history, some dreadful atrocities. Scotland did as well, if you look at the clearances, but not to the same extent as Ireland. So Ireland must has to have an honest conversation about its history. And that's talking about the good bits, but it's also talking about the not so good bits as well. So that's where, and again, I'm not a historian, you guys are, but that's where talking honestly and openly about history and recognising that this is a conversation whether you believe in independence or not. You know, Scotland is a democratic country and can seek independence democratically if it's given the opportunity in a way that maybe other countries haven't been in the past, like Georgia, or where I spent time, or, 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 or conflicts that are going on elsewhere. Does that help? It's a good question, but I, I, I think it's, it's a long one and one that we're still at the start of discussing. Yeah, I mean, I think highlighting, as you said, that this book is really to get this conversation going. Um, and at the moment, having read it, it's the first, first contribution to the conversation. But there are a lot of gaps in this kind of global aspect as we talk about post-colonialism. So not just the colonisation itself, but Scotland would in turn be a post-colonial state similar to Ireland is. And by that, I just mean a post-empire, not necessarily that Scotland was colonised by the English. What I mean is that in a post-colonial world, Scotland's going to emerge as a new country or would, would yes. have gained independence. So how does it then interact with these other post-colonial countries and therefore not just replicate the, the British experience? Um, and I guess the goal to turn this into a little bit of a question is you said that it wouldn't change the world but it would so by Scotland becoming an independent nation it ends Britain so it ends in the United Nations Security Council you have five countries 
five countries that are former empires, they still are empires. And Britain is now gone from that list. So you now have four countries. Who's going to replace it? No, England and Wales are going to replace it. You know, it's a bit like the question over nuclear weapons, that Scotland should not seek to be a mini-UK. You're not. You're five and a half million. What remains of the UK, incidentally, our most important bilateral relationship, our friends and partners in London, um, will be that successor state. So you have to recognise that. So I'm somebody who believes in independence. Just to finish this thought, yeah. they're really hard questions for unionists. What's the future? What's global Britain? You know, if you look at opinion polls in Scotland, um, you have to be in your 60s before you're comfortably in an age group whereby your peers believe in the union. So you have generations who have switched off the union. Big questions for unionists and the place in the world. So there's a quite But for those of us who believe in independence, where do you fit in? What's your, what do you bring to world when you change and you secede from the United Kingdom? What is your message to the rest of the world? What are your values? And I'm not sure we've answered that question sufficiently yet. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's exactly where we want to be going, is how do we answer that question? How do, what values do we want to change? Because So the point I was making is it would change the world, because although yeah. so Britain might still exist because England and Wales and the province of Northern Ireland will still be Great Britain, then you have a constitutional question internally. But looking on the international perspective, does that Britain still constitute a place in the United Nations Security Council? Unlikely. So then if you're going to reorganise that, you start so as all these cogs start changing in the international system, not all the answers are going to return to the status quo. And for me, this is the biggest, in term, uh, for the international question, what Scotland's it- independence represents is a change from the status quo, an opportunity to, to move forward be more progressive because at the moment most international system protects the state's quo. No it does but I don't see a way of removing the UK as a permanent member of the United Nations. Mm-hmm. If you're India or Brazil or Japan or Germany question comes up legitimately comes up but because the um, you know the post second world war institutions are still in place that reflect the world of 1945 rather than the world of 2021 it is still in place. So these questions come up already. It doesn't matter if Scotland's independent or not. These questions come up. But what can be done practically to change it? I don't know. Now, what you have to concede in Scotland is you will be, you have to know your limitations. You have to know that in terms of your international clout, your European relationships as a member of the European Union are your most important. You're working in partnership, although not exclusively with your EU neighbours. And that will temper um, what you can do and who you are. But for me, it's a damn sight better than where you are at the moment, and you can't really do anything. You know, you are part of what is increasingly a unitary state that does not allow you to express your views in the international um, arena. And as an independent uh, country, or well, as Britain changes its dynamic, the the question arises in a more forceful way. Uh, So these countries, as you mentioned, that are not content with the current situation, which is that European empires control the global system, is that an opportunity to now break away and rebuild that system? So as you said, it's, it's representative of the post-war world. So in 2000 and whatever, that Scotland becomes independent. That's an opportunity to now reorganise the global system and be a little bit more inclusive. So I disagree with you in the sense that I don't think Scottish independence will be the world-changing event that a lot of people might think it is. I think that given Brexit, if Scotland becomes independent, I think Alec Massey, the commentator, as a unionist, described the Scottish independence movement is the most boring movement in the world, but he says it positively in the sense that you discuss what is the, you know, we're all very sensible in the way that we discuss these things. I think it's a good thing, you know, good thing, but what's the impact on schools and hospitals, on folks' day-to-day lives? What's their impact on our neighbours? Now, 
if Scotland becomes independent and, and rejoins the European Union, it is rejoining the European mainstream of thought. So actually, the outlier on this is a Brexit Britain that doesn't really fit in. Scotland has rejoined the mainstream. So I'm not sure it would be entirely that controversial and world-changing, much as I'd love it to be. I think we've got to be honest with ourselves that Scotland seceding from the UK and, and becoming a, an independent member state of the European Union wouldn't, you know, it would change a lot for Scotland and the way we interact, but would it be earth-shattering? I don't think so. Um, it would be pretty straightforward. Would it trigger the UN to have a, a moment, an existential moment? I'm not sure it would either. I'm afraid, I wish it did, but I think you've just, I think sometimes we've got to be realistic about um, what will happen. I think it'll make headlines around the world for a couple of days and the world moves on. Yeah, I mean, my cynicism comes in here where I agree, which is that everything has to change in order for it all to stay the same, as Lampedusa said. So once this, this UN has to react to this change in global system, it will change everything in order to protect its status quo. However, that's a cynic in this. So the question really is, do you want independence? It doesn't change that much. You know, if, you're, if Scotland became independent tomorrow, what would it change? It would mean, you know, in Scotland, we'd have to join NATO, in my opinion, because of the... Iceland gap because of their commonality with our Nordic friends and neighbours and our, those in the British Isles. Um, so I don't think it would change a huge amount. Do you really think Scotland have five, five and a half million changes so China and Russia would all of a sudden, right, this is our moment to change. I think the fall of Cabo provided a bigger opportunity for that international system to change but these things do not change overnight. They change over decades. Um, and if there's a conversation to be had it's a difficult one because France and the United Kingdom are permanent members of the UN Security Council. So anything that changes must be with their consent. I mean, I would, I would see it as an opportunity to change, but uh, so I'm thinking more on the global south looking in. So in the global, yeah. from the internal part, if you're in Scotland, you're fairly okay with the idea of maintaining the status quo. Scotland has benefited from it and it will continue yeah. to benefit from it. So then for a global perspective of, as to why an independent Scotland, it offers an opportunity to reconsider everything that, that the global system is based upon. And I guess that's the optimist in me coming out there on how we can reorganise the system. But does Scotland, but, is Scotland interested in doing that? But look, this is where we all have a response. I think we are. Now, one thing that's interesting, but this is not up to me. This is like, as, as, as the first thing I'll say to, to students and others is, foreign policy is not merely defined by prime ministers speaking to prime ministers and presidents or monarchs speaking to monarchs. Never has been. Foreign policy is defined by the conversations and the interactions in our higher education, you know, between universities as you're, um, you know, as, as, and you're a living, breathing example of that, Jordan. Um, it, is, it, is, it is between our cultural institutions. It's why you cannot, you know, I've seen conservatives argue that Scotland does not have a foreign policy footprint. It does. You know, you'd be the strongest unionist and I believe it does. Our cities, look at the impact that Glasgow had on the anti-apartheid debate, the links that Aberdeen had across the former Soviet Union. You know, at a city level and a local level, we are international actors. Now, what was interesting, if you look at the SNP Green deal that came up, which was a deal between the Scottish government and the Green Party for devolved governance in Scotland. The Global South was mentioned about three times. Climate emergency was mentioned, new overseas offices. So our international footprint goes into that document of governance in Scotland. So the question is not, do I think this will change? I don't know. It's not up to me entirely. It's up to us all to have this conversation. So it's not just 
politicians who have this responsibility. It's everybody who is a citizen has the responsibility to make sure that conversation happens. So I'll, I'll move on. I'm dragging this question out a little bit. So Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> move on to the next question. But yeah, let's hope the conversation happens. Um, it's a not good opportunity to reassess the world. Um, so going back to the kind of the base of the book, which is you mentioned how independence debate has been neglected. Uh, sorry, the independence debate has neglected international affairs and it focuses on domestic issues. But is this not indicative of the parochialism and narcissism of Scotland's global outlook? It's quite a loaded question. But I'd like to see no, I, don't, I don't think so. You know, one thing I've noticed about the debate in Scotland, but this is important. When we read about the refugee crisis, immigration, it's easy to hide behind the rhetoric. And I noticed the big difference when I was in the political rhetoric at Westminster, having been used to the political rhetoric in Scotland. So I think leaders from across the political spectrum have shown leadership on the refugee crisis, on immigration, on the climate, where our debate is miles ahead of where it has been down at Westminster. So can we do better? We can do a lot better. My word, we can do a lot better. But our independence debate is couched in terms of how we fit into the international community either as an independent country or as part of the union. I've also seen, I've had first-hand experience of the SNP being amongst the first when we talk about what is our responsibility to our friends and neighbours in these islands and beyond. You know, independence is not just about us, it's about our neighbours and we have, our, we have rights. It's like being a citizen. If you're a global citizen, it comes with additional rights and it comes with additional responsibilities. And we need to talk about the responsibilities it comes with. Why have we built our international development fund, even though we do not have finances for an international development fund? Because as a Scottish taxpayer, that money goes into the pot at Westminster. So this is additional money that takes away from public services in Scotland to pay for international development. But is an important thing to do to be seen as a responsible international citizen. Where do we sit on disinformation and having a proper conversation and saying to them, do you know something? When Russia acts and threatens the independence of states. They are threatening the independence of like-minded liberal democratic states who have achieved their independence. And that is an uncomfortable conversation around issues like when you're watching Russia today or when you spread disinformation on your social media feed. That is about the responsibility of being a global player. And, and so I know we'll run out of time. And I'll leave you with this thought as well, which is in terms of the broader debate, if you're pro-independence or pro-union, there's a focus on Scotland now that there wasn't in 2014. I'm not saying that this is front page news everywhere, but it's got a lot more attention. So how we conduct our debate and how we talk to each other will have an impact on how we are seen as a global citizen. So again, it's about the responsibility in each and every one of us. We contribute to being a good global citizen. It is not merely the responsibility of Nicola Sturgeon or Boris Johnson. It's the responsibility of each and every one of us. <laughs> yeah, so just to try and round off uh, with the last question here, I just want to bring it back onto a little bit of history. Um, yeah. So Scotland has a dark history when engaging with the rest of the world, from the slave trade to the conquest of yeah. already occupied lands such as North America and Australasia. Yeah. Moreover, when not profiting from these egregious acts, it has supported economic exploitation through its informal empire in places such as Argentina, Brazil and South Africa. So how does Scotland's connection to global history inform your conceptualisation of Scotland and the world and how it will progress in the future? I don't know fully. Um, I think this is about having a conversation. It's about, you can't be an expert on everything as individuals. I think it's about you, Jordan, opening up your conversation about Latin America. You know about that. Start talking about it so people know about it. It's about people reading Billy Kay's books on 
the Scottish world. So you get the really nice, interesting stories, but you also get the darker stuff as 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 well. And it's about being an open and honest citizen that your history has not, you've not always been the victim here. Um, and, and the fact that we are wealthy, that we are developed, and we have these links um, comes came with a cost, and we need to be aware of what that cost was and our responsibilities subsequently. Now, you cannot do everything. You cannot go and make up for 300 years of the, 400 years of the slave trade as a country of five and a half million. So you need to figure out how you do that. Do you do it through higher education and by your areas where you're world leading? Do you do it by leading the world on climate justice and trying to lead on that issue, the most pressing issue of our generation at, at the moment? But that's why, and that's why I went with the book, it's about opening up that national conversation in an open, honest and frank way. But it's not just about me, and that's why I'm really excited about the work that you're doing, Jordan, and that Rory's doing as well. Thanks. I mean, that's a great way to conclude it because really at the heart of our project at the Scottish Centre for Global History is to open up conversations and to be more considerate and inclusive of the people around us. So again, yeah. thank you, Stephen, for joining us, agreeing to participate. Thank you. Real pleasure to be there. Yeah, thank you so much. I think if the goal was to advance the debate, we definitely achieved something of our conversation today. So it's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs>